Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Brandon Monroe, Uranium Market Commentator and CEO of Bannerman Resources, the ASX-listed junior with assets in Namibia. We talk about Kazakhstan this week, so three things coming from that. Looks like the Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, Samrok Kazinya, are offloading another 4.5% stake in Kazatomprom. We also talk about an interview with the CEO of Kazatomprom, where some, some relatively surprising numbers come out and admissions as well, and the fact that Uranium One reported a 5% year-on-year decline in production. The US government has issued, an, or is thinking of issuing, another Section 232, hear all about it. And we talk about the Iranian sanctions and the fact that China's come up with a fairly strong riposte, uh, and the Europeans are following suit with their disdain of the US's stance on this. But enjoy the podcast. Brandon, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, Matt. What about yourself? All good here. All good here. Desperate to talk to you for a weekly catch-up because there's been a lot happening. Again, geopolitics at work. So um, some of the things that um, I've noted uh, were... Let's start with Kazakhstan, first of all, because um, I think that the geopolitics is, is the theme for this week, right? So And the impact it's going to have on uh, utility buying. Um, and a, a little bit of update as to with regards to production as well. So I think it was Nuclear Intelligence Weekly had a, an interview, which was, I think, back in the end of May, but it's only sort of come out recently with uh, Mr. Permatov, who is the CEO of Kaz Atomprom. Quite a few interesting points come out of there. So what was your, first of all, what was your, what was your take on that interview? Seems quite smart to me. It was a good interview. Yeah, it was... Um, probably the next level of depth after the UXC interview that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And we should tell everyone that it's this is normally subscription-only material, but fortunately, Kazat and Prom are putting it up on the media portal in their website. So good folks like us can go and look at it. So good depth, good level of questions, and indicating, I think, a very sophisticated outward-facing approach now coming out of that corporate team in Kazatomprom. There were some things that I think are important for the market generally to understand out of that. The first one that I found useful is uh, there's been a bit of speculation about what happens if Kazatomprom comes on earlier than the three months that, where they've had their reductions and their suspended wellhead development. So I think as at 22 May when this interview was first um, recorded, I think they've well and truly put that to bed. He said that you're right in assuming that it's going to be throughout the second quarter. And he certainly left the door open for it extending beyond that. And the, the one comment that was made in the context of how they draw down their inventory was, well, if it does go longer than the three months, we certainly can't rule out needing to buy on spot to meet our deliveries. So I found that aspect really quite interesting as well. Well, that's huge. That's a huge statement, it, you know, if it comes to be, obviously. But the fact that he's leaving the door open for it, one, I think, to me, shows us a responsible governance in terms of uh, his, his, his staff, employees, etc. cetera. Um, it's responsible reporting, and that it kind of gives the market a little bit of guidance as to how they're, they're thinking. But I, the, the bit that I was... Um, quite interested in was um, 
where they talked about where they where they are. They've always been a big 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 producer, but the section where they talked about sales into the market, I mean, it goes back to like 2015 to today. I thought that was extraordinary because it's it wasn't the kind of the well-run oiled machine. They they were kind of trying to work out how they actually got product into market. So again, what what did you think about the way they described that, and what are the implications for today? So people can go right to the end of the interview to see that couple of paragraphs. You're right, it was really interesting and, and very useful context, uh, particularly for someone who perhaps hasn't followed Kazadamprom over the last several years like we have. Uh, essentially what our CEO Permatov said was between the three years from 2015, 16, 17, uh, Kazadamprom wasn't able actually able to sell all of its uranium. And he said that they only sold about three quarters of it, and a lot of that was through traders. So when you go back and look at the uranium price during that period, it starts to make a lot of sense. If Kazadamprom was struggling to get rid of their material, no wonder it was sold down to that extent. Um, but what's important then is that he confirms that through THK, and I think just becoming a lot more commercial and a lot more sophisticated, they've got a lot better at that, and they've been able to for 2020 actually oversell. And I think that was one of the comments that came out in our discussion when they did release uh, their results a few weeks ago. So what they've seen is a period of a few years of underselling, building up producer inventories, obviously being a very motivated seller if they can only get rid of three quarters of it, to now moving to a point of not only balance, but before the COVID disruptions, they were already overselling to reduce their inventories down to the, the target level, which he mentioned there. So apart from just having you know, good data for people to get hold of and read and understand and contextualize, I found it interesting because you get the impression that there's been this open tap of material that the utilities and the traders and otherwise others have just been accustomed to loading, you know, pulling out the bucket and filling it whenever they needed to. And that's really changed now. And I'm not sure that the market at large of uranium buyers fully understands what this means if that tap suddenly slams off. And you can't just load the bucket up there. You've got to go and start buying your water in small bottles. So it's that type of uh, movement or change or shifting in market dynamics that I think of when I read that paragraph. And if that's the way it plays out, I think it's very telling about how, how much this market's going to tighten up. I, th I think so. I think so. And, and the other component to this is, the, is technical, because this is an ISR operation predominantly. And they, um, there's some technical limitations to that. They can't just switch off ISR or you know, the, the, the whole thing kind of effectively it freezes up, or you know, the glue solidifies, as it were. So, how do, how are they, or are they maintaining, you know, bare minimum, uh, you know, run rates to kind of keep this thing going? So, when they do switch on, there's not such a huge, again, another delay in getting up to, you know, full operational capacity. No doubt, there'd be some work um, being taken place at a desktop level in terms of planning as to how they will recommence wellheads. And there'd be lots of smart people within Kazadamprom 
gaming through just how they can operate with the logistics and so on to get everything moving. But don't forget, this is a big company. They've got something like 22,000 employees in Kazadamprom. So it's not just about getting started again at one single operation, one mine. They're going to have to do that all over the um, south part of the country. So the other thing that probably relates to what we were just talking about is that the market hasn't felt these uh, production disruptions out of Kazakhstan yet because where we're at at the moment is all of those, we're only halfway in or a bit more than halfway into this three-month period. And most of those assets would still be producing more or less what they were producing before because they'd be working off the, um, the pregnant liquor or the, um, the material, the, the solution that's got the acid in that's dissolved the uranium that was a result of the wellhead development that was done several months ago. Mm. They will only, that the, the best quality assets will still be producing, they'll still be pumping that solution out more or less how they have. Uh, perhaps the more challenged geological assets, they'll start to see it tapering off. So they'll see it in their solution numbers, they'll see it in the permeability rates and the amount of solution that they're able actually to draw for a given level of pressure and so forth. But even once they've started wellhead development, this is a several month lead time process. So if, if they're operating a, let's say a lesser quality asset that's already tapering now, well, you've got to take the day that they start there and add three months before you'll start seeing that laden solution coming back at the level that they're used to. So you've got this lag effect um, that will only come into effect a few months after the decision is made to get back into it and to remobilise the bulk of those 22,000 employees and get them working productively again. Absolutely. So it's not binary. It's not on, off. There, there, there will be a lag. Again, that impacts the market. Again, that affects uh, access to U308. And again, that's very telling for the, for the marketplace. Now, one of the other companies, sticking with the Kazakhstan theme for a little bit longer, uh, Uranium One. They put out some numbers. I th again, interesting. Um, I think you know, production is down slightly, um, but profitability up because you know they've been able to sell it sell at higher rates. So you know swings and roundabouts there. But I suspect we're going to see a, you know a different sort of set of numbers from them. We've seen the next quarter. But again, what was your take on the Uranium One announcement? What did it tell you? So on the face of it, on the face of it, what we saw was on a seasonally adjusted so this um, period versus the same period year on year yeah their production levels were down by five percent now what i think is interesting there is i don't think that number has taken into account what's happening in kazakhstan yet because uranium one have got amongst the best of those kazakh isr assets so the ones that i would expect to have the most resilience the assets that would carry on producing at nameplate for the longest after the wellhead development stops are that portfolio of Uranium One, to, together with one or two others that um, are in joint ventures with Arano and also, um, you know, Inkai's a fantastic project as well that Cameco's got. So I don't think we're seeing the effect in those numbers, and yet they're already down 5% for either just reasons of those assets depleting. We've talked before about how ISR 
mines do have a long tail where they start to run off and they start to deplete. They're not as binary as the conventional mine that, uh, you know, essentially runs out of ore one day and, and grinds to a halt. So presumably what we'll see is continued reduction. And regardless of that, it's just indicative of what we're seeing across the whole market, whether it's Olympic Dam or whether it's the Namibian giants or whether it's Uranium One. It just seems that there's five to 10% being shaved off everyone's production numbers at the moment, assuming that they're still producing. Okay, you think that's a case of um, wellhead decline versus deliberately producing uh, production because the price price in the market is, you know, if there was excess product in the market, why pump it out there and sell it for a low price? I just haven't seen any evidence of Uranium One operating in that way. Um, they've got low production, low cost assets. Uh, what I've observed is they're quite willing to sell at the prevailing market price. Uh, and they were quite willing to do that even when the spot price was in the low 20s. So maybe there's an element to that, but I, it's nothing that I've been able to pick up. Okay. I, I'm sort of intrigued to sort of see how the, these numbers play out in the, in the next quarter because there's, there's um, again, harking back to conversations we've had previously, and I think something I want to end on um, with you know the US impression of what what Russia and its allies are trying to do to uranium prices. I just, I just would like to under, understand that at some point. And right now, it's all speculation. But um, again, I think the final kind of Kazakh-focused story for this week, as if we haven't had enough already, was uh, uh, Samruk Kazinya. They have put up, well, are offering up 5% of Kazatomprom, they, they're big big holders, but I think the number we talked about is for it's about 150 million bucks for about four and a half percent. Again, wh- why why would they do that now? And they're a 75 billion dollar fund, so I, 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 I guess that this is inconsequential to them. But even so, it's uh, it's a big a big bold move. What's it say to the market? So there's a couple of things here that are quite interesting. So yes, they're a very big sovereign wealth fund. But this is very important for them. Uh, a few years ago, Kazakhstan created a roadmap of privatizations, predominantly assets through Samrat Kazina, but you know also other privatizations as well. And Kazatomprom was seen as being the flagship. It was the the first ship out of the harbour with um, significant telco airline privatizations backed up behind it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they obtained a, a plan or an approval back then to reduce their holding down to 75%. Uh, as everyone knows, there was the initial IPO where they reduced their holding to about 85%. Then uh, in September last year, they did a secondary sale, um, which brought their holding down uh, again by a few percent. And that 4.5% that you mentioned, that was actually what they were intending to do. And they ended up upscaling it, taking about 206 million rather than the 150 and reduced themselves all the way down to the 75% target. There's a small retail component back into Kazakhstan, but if you assume that that's all fully subscribed, Mm -hmm. then they will be bang on 75%. And that's box ticked. Um, In terms of the timing, I think if you look at the share price graph of Kazatomprom in London, 
that probably tells the story here. Uh, the, the secondary placing in September last year was at 13 US dollars um, per depository receipt. And they've traded below, now they've popped up above it and it just looks to me like it was their first good solid opportunity to get the job done without doing it at a lower price than the previous um, price that was set. So well done to the Sovereign Wealth Fund, I'd say. But what it also means for the broader market is quite interesting because there's another $200 million worth of stock that's been placed predominantly institutionally. Generalist investors have picked that up. So one of the things that the uranium market has suffered from is just being so small. Very important, as we always talk about, you know, it's an incredibly important energy source, but the investable universe is very small. It's hard to get banks interested. It's hard to get analysts at broking firms and, and so on interested to get enough volume going through their desk to justify them investing in coverage. So here's another 200 million out there. They, they did a switcheroo on their advisors I saw. So there's another couple of advisors who are incentivized to get out there and talk about the story. And all of that just has to be positive for the market. It's just extra eyeballs, extra reason to talk about uranium and Kazatomprom. So I think it's a good development. And now it's, uh, it's brought that whole cycle to an end. And now Kazatomprom is the entity that we were waiting for it to become. Now, the other thing that I find quite interesting is, uh, just going back to that interview for a moment, quite a bit of discussion about dividends. Um, they've got a very generous dividend policy. And I must say the folks at Nuclear Intelligence Weekly are very astute. You know, I like them a lot and uh, they're, they're good, intelligent journalists, as their name would suggest, right? So they pressed and prodded and poked a bit on the dividend policy for two, from two angles, really. First of all, and the dividend policy is to pay out 75%. And Kazatomprom made a commitment to pay out 200 million. The first angle is, well, you're going to need a fair bit of capital to get this wellhead development started up again. Uh, how are you going to go with that? Is there enough there? And Kazatomprom said there would, but you know, I think the fact that those questions were being asked is interesting. But the other element is, the Tengi certainly is very helpful for Kazatomprom. It's really dropped a lot because they've got Tengi costs and a US dollar selling price. So in terms of running business, that's fantastic. Except when you've made a commitment in US dollars to send 200 million bucks out the door. So that was the other line of questioning, which is starting to pick apart a little bit. At, well, if the Tengi continues to fall, how's that going to help your capacity to pay dividends? And when that, the importance of that and the relevance back to the whole market is that's going to create further incentives at a commercial level for Kazatomprom to allow this market to continue tightening and to allow the uranium price to generate better margins for them just so that they can keep topping up the bank account and to be able to both pay that dividend out as well as have the capital available to get started again. Yeah, I mean, it's a very generous dividend. I mean, I, I, I'm stunned uh, that they would set it at that. And in fact, I'm stunned that they would set it because uh, they, they don't need to. Do you think it's under pressure from back home with the, the, the Sovereign Wealth Fund? I, I, I'm not sure pressure is the right way. That's just how it was set. Um, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is there for 
generating money out of its sovereign assets and deploying them into other parts of the country. So it has been a cash cow and they want it to stay that way. Uh, undoubtedly, that's what it's all about. Okay. And they're creating those expectations to um, generate a point of difference, I think, on the LSE. Yeah, and, and well, I think that's my, my next point is, is the, the need for the appearance of transparency because there's one group of people who are not buying it and that's, uh, I think, US uranium producers and, and, and juniors who are saying, well, actually, you are undermining our market. You have been constantly selling into uh, the market at Z, you know, z zero margin uh, gains uh, because you're trying to undermine what we're doing over here. You're trying to take over our energy business. And there was an article to that effect this week from The Hill. Um, it was, okay, it was a lot of politics involved in the, in the narrative and the, and the wording and the, the way they crafted that um, message. But do you, do you think that Kazakhstan is trying extra hard to be seen as a proper company, Western standards. There's now 25% of shares in the open market. Is Are they concerned uh, about the reputation? Yes, I think they are. I think they are trying hard. I think they're, as best as they possibly can, they're adopting um, quality governance, uh, seeing the way that they behave behind closed doors as I get the chance to. I, I can never fault any of that. Um, they're in a process of commercialising their mentality and their culture in the organisation, and that can be a slow ship to turn around, um, not only for businesses that have emerged from a Soviet sphere of influence, but the same thing happens in privatisations in countries like the UK and Australia. You know, you, you take what's been a government entity and you try and get those that entire organisation to think culturally like an entrepreneur, and it's, it's hard work. So undoubtedly, there's a bit of that that's going on. But I just, I, I struggle to buy some of the, some of the, the, the accusations that are coming out at Kazatomprom in the US. It just doesn't add up for me. Uh, like, they're only selling 10% of their own product into the US. So they're certainly underselling into what is still the world's largest uranium market. So this concept that they're sort of flooding it it just doesn't, the numbers don't support that. But, um, and when you look at the report that we talked about last week, the, um, the EIA report, uh, it wasn't the Kazakh material that was the cheapest. It was the Russian material. So the material coming from Ad Adam Rydmet Zolota and also from Uranium One. So, and when you put that Kazakh material against Australian material, uh, it's more or less the same price. So the numbers don't support the type of rhetoric that you just described that is coming out of some corners of the industry. So I struggle to believe it and I struggle to agree with it. So, But aren't they falling under the umbrella of Russia? They, they are being positioned as a puppet for Russia. They are will do exactly what they're told by Russia. And there's this very um, aggressive national security stance on, on multiple fronts in, in the US at the moment. And I think we'll you know, stay, stay away maybe from what's been happening on, on the streets of, of America this week. That's a, that's a very hot topic, deliberately, you know, a deservedly slow hot topic. But for today, on Capitol Hill, 
um, in lobbyist groups, we're seeing this very ag aggressive language. Um, we've got another section, 232, coming up for Vanadium, which we'll talk about in, in, in a second. But this whole national security issue as a justification for a lot of these industries, because they're seeing it as, as, as a route to maintain the, uh, you know, the, the, the Amer America's position in the world and self-sufficiency and you know, for, for lots of reasons, people are using that as the, the headline banner for their argument, national security. Don't, don't you think that the U.S. is justified in taking that position? Why, why should it be beholden to Russia? Why should they let Russia come in and take over their, their energy, nuclear energy um, requirements? Because this is, it's a game of political chess, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's two parts to the question that you've just asked. The first one is the concept of lumping Kazakhstan and Russia together. Uh, it's a convenient thing to do. And I think for, uh, let's say, a readership or an audience who maybe haven't spent much time thinking too carefully about a lot of this stuff or haven't followed the history or haven't been to those parts of the world, uh, it's an easy thing just to lump them all together. They were, of course, very close. They were all in the Soviet Union together, um, still a lot of Kazakh commerce is, spoke, uh, is done in Russian, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a sovereign nation. It is its own country. And whilst undoubtedly Russia still got a lot of influence there, and we've talked before about what would happen if really if push came to shove, push isn't coming to shove at the moment. And I think they are operating fairly independently. They certainly regard Uranium One and Atom Red Mount Zolotar as competitors and certainly behave as competitors. And until something happens where the geopolitical deck chairs get moved around a little bit, I think it'll continue there. So that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, I think what you're asking about is, is the US enabling itself or making itself too vulnerable to Russian dominance uh, in the energy sector, which is nuclear? So, it, and this, it goes to the whole Russian suspension agreement um, discussions uh, to a lesser extent, Section 232. The answer is, in my opinion, the US does need to be careful of that. They need to be very careful. And their solution needs to be to get their own industry to the point where it can compete as a viable alternative, um, not only to, to Russian uh, suppliers, but also the European suppliers. And that came through in the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report. There's an understanding that that is the case. Um, the article that you're referring to that was published on the Hill, um, they talk about it's some of the more uh, extreme views in the industry about what levels of uh, enrichment and contracts and so on might be uh, expected should the Russian suspension agreement not be renewed. Um, and they're probably realistic. I think there was a number there of 40% uh, of US demand after uh, the end of this year. And when you look at how well the Russians compete, well, that's probably about right. They probably would be able to fill that amount in just on producing a very good product reliably at a very good price. Now, where does that leave the US? Well, yeah, it does leave them quite vulnerable and the best way out is for them to have their own domestic alternative that's viable and competitive. Yeah, and I think 
If you look back to you know, how Russia has used gas or weaponized gas in Europe and with their Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, um, I think that seems to be what the Americans are fearing, that if you, if you let the Russians come in and control 40% of the nuclear su uh, energy supply in, in the US, they, they take the lead. They, they start dictating and the utilities will be at the behest of you know, what the Russians decide. So a, I think the fear seems to be uh, Russians producing at a not-for-profit you know, not basis um, and in, in a way where it's a lost leader, effectively. They're saying, we don't mind losing money here, but we'll, we'll play the long game. We don't mind. We'll subsidize, subsidize it from elsewhere because it's not a lot of money in the scheme of things. We'll cripple the U.S. ability to produce because you know, companies are independent. There's nothing nationalized in the U.S., uh, although they're having some calls over the past couple of weeks to nationalize a, a, a number of commodities. Um, Vanadium being one of them, which I guess we should talk about. Um, so I, th I think that's the fear from there. But you know, so I'm not quite sure from what you said whether you th you know whether you believe that those fears are are, are valid, um, or you think that the strategy is uh, that the Russians are employing um, is is misunderstood, or indeed maybe maybe they they are valid. It's just you know com it's commerce. It's not geopolitics, it's commerce. Look, I think those fears are valid. Um, it, you see them expressed in rather shrill terms from time to time. So if I'm being a bit cagey here, I'm just being very careful what fears I'm agreeing to because there is a fair bit of codswallop out there. But in the way that you've just described it, I'm quite happy to, to agree with you there that there is a, a, a legitimate um, risk here that needs to be fundamentally mitigated. And it can be mitigated in a couple of ways. The, the first one is what I talked about in terms of establishing the American industry, as they now seem quite determined to do. But it also needs to be mitigated at a utility level or at a reactor by reactor level. And that exists uh, amongst many of the US utilities. Many of them have their own risk mitigation uh, policies where they can't be more exposed to X percent from Kazakh slash Russian material, they group them together and, and so on. But it's not uniform. And uh, the risk mitigation, what we would regard as sensible risk mitigation, when prices are really low, number one, it's pretty tempting to look past some of those risks when you can mop up really cheap pounds. And secondly, when prices are low, that risk just doesn't seem so real. It doesn't seem so acute, you know. When there's 2015, 2016, when there was so much material around, as we talked about, oh, is it really realistic that Russia could turn off the taps? You know, there's all of this around. Fast forward to 2025, when we do know that there's going to be a real crunch here, mm. that's when they're at their most vulnerable. And that's when the mitigation needs to be both at an industry level, at a government level and at a reactor level. And I think that's what you know. People were well, certainly Section Two Two Three Two was about. You had these companies begging their government to help them fight uh, against what they saw as um, uh, you, you know a state 
competing against a, a, a company which you know has a has a balance sheet which which looks like it did whatever it was for, for those two companies at the time they couldn't possibly hope to win what they needed to do is kind of create this recognition that this was a potential problem and what the rhetoric we're starting to see off the back of um, you know, if you feel working group and, and even prior to that and certainly some of the, the press which is coming out now and, and I appreciate these are possibly paid for lobbyist type articles which is a little bit you know sensationalist but the, the point the point is there's a mood in America now Trump has created a mood on several fronts but businesses I think want him though he he is pro-business he's telling people what the success rate for some of those industries is is another matter, and the fights he chooses to fight is another matter. But uranium and nuclear have got the attention of the, of the hill. We still haven't seen any announcements around. Uh, we've seen lots of announcements, no, no announcements around the commercial component. What is the government going to step in and do? How much money are they going to put forward? We talked last week. It's going to take billions. Of dollars, we're still not hearing that kind of conversation. It's just all combative without any substance. So, do you think it's coming down the line? Or again, I keep coming back to this question: Is this just electoral rhetoric? So, two things there. The first one is America's vulnerability to Russia. If we can just lump the whole concept of Russia together, mm. um, when it comes to uranium, is very different to their vulnerability to Russia when it comes to enrichment. Um, and Section 232 was about uranium. So uh, I'm not so willing to take what is a genuine vulnerability when it comes to enrichment services and extrapolate that to uranium. You know, they're still Canada, they're still Australia, they're still Namibia. Um, for, for at least the foreseeable future, there's Kazakh material that will be reliably available there. So it's just a really different proposition. But the second point that I'd make is that the strategy adopted that was articulated in that, um, in that report, I think is very sound. They're saying we, we've got a fairly limited strategic reserve at the moment. It's, uh, what they've got at the moment is only enough for about seven reloads. So if they did find themselves becoming too vulnerable, say to Russian enrichment, and there was a spat and that was withheld. Well, they don't, you know, I mean, there's 90 reactors there, right? So seven reloads doesn't really buy them very much time. So the strategy then of building up that reserve from seven to what really needs to be more like 22, it needs to buy them a, a good solid year, if not two of um, buffer time. That's a solid strategy. And that's something that I can really get behind and agree with. And the idea is they want to take that uranium that's talked about, then they want to make sure that they've got conversion that is re-established in the US. So they can then use that uranium, push it through the conversion cycle to create the demand to get Convertine up and running again at Metropolis Works facility. And then they're talking about, we need to enrich that material so that their stockpile for strategic reasons as a primary form of mitigation against this vulnerability that we're talking about is sitting there in EUP. And then it's just fabrication and the US exposure to geopolitical interference in fabrication is actually very small. Okay. No, I, I, I buy that argument. Um, you mentioned something that you said, you know, you, you, US has got, in terms of 
you've still got Canada, you've still got Australia, you've still got Namibia. They need France. It's a very combative environment at the moment. There doesn't seem to be a lot of French friend making going on at the moment because it brings us on to topic again we talked about last week, which was the Iranian sanctions, right? There has, at the time, there hadn't been a response, I think. Um, there was a response by a Russian uh, senator, but that was it. But now we've got the French, the Germans, and the UK have come out and said, we regret the US's position on the Iranian sanctions. China has come out and effectively said, forget it. Uh, if anyone wants to, we, we're cracking on as normal. And if anyone wants to join us, we would welcome them. Uh, the Russians, I think there's no, no official um, statement from them, but I, I can imagine it's going to be something along the lines of the, of the Chinese. So if the America, America needs to um, deal with this, um, we talked last week, said it's not a big enough deal commercially for countries to go, go to economic war with, with the US. And we've, and we've seen Trump's temper tantrums um, in, in effect with China. Even, even the Chinese wobbled a bit there. So Europe's not going to do too much about it, but it's, it's pretty strong language that they, well, for Europe, uh, they're using there um, about their belief that the US has called this wrong. So what, is the US going to back down or is, or is it going to you know, encourage of its convictions and carry on as, as normal? Well, that language has been used consistently right back to uh, May 2018 when President Trump unilaterally withdrew in the first place. Um, and it doesn't seem to have swayed the decision making too much in the meantime. Um, we've seen a, a, a willingness, I think, from the administration to rub up against its allies and its friends uh, as it suits them. So I don't think that's going to be particularly persuasive. Um, it is strong language, uh, but it, there was a huge diplomatic effort back in 2018 um, to try and dissuade the administration from leaving the JCPOA. Um, and that ultimately was ineffective. We don't know just how much they managed to slow the process down, and perhaps they did. Perhaps there was enough discussions behind closed doors. But it ultimately didn't succeed in trying to pull that deal back together. And we haven't seen it succeed in any way in terms of renegotiating or bringing a new deal to the party. The other thing to bear in mind with China is they can't really do anything in the US in the nuclear sphere at the moment either because um, they're largely uh, unable through either the trade dispute or through direct sanctions in, on some of those uh, Chinese nuclear entities. So they don't have much to lose in the way that Russia does. So it doesn't surprise me that China's basically saying, well, you know, Iran sits at the, towards the end of our Belt and Road Initiative a large part of our export strategy is about rolling it out through there. So, uh, yeah, if the US is going to make open up those pathways for us, well, we'll jump into them. There has been this week um, uh, by the US Commerce Department. It said it was going to open an investigation into whether imports of vanadium, which are the metals used in you know the aerospace and defence and energy applications, um, they're looking at a potential Section Two Three Two probe. Another one, as we alluded to earlier, um, is do we do they need this? Is this just another move by the vanadium lobbyists to try and get notice because they've seen what's happened with with uranium? Well, I think you could probably argue that in vanadium there's a bigger cause for 
concern than uranium in many respects. Um, not only does it have those technology related applications that are used in directly in national defense and uh, um, national security, but vital in steel production and becoming a lot more important in storage as well. It's certainly my opinion that vanadium redox flow batteries are the only currently viable uh, commercialized technology in storage if you don't have access to pumped hydro. So this, the supply of vanadium is very choppy. An awful lot of it comes from um, poor quality magnetite. A lot of that is in China. And so there's a geopolitical aspect where China and Southern Africa dominate the supply and Russia dominate the supply of vanadium. But there's also a commercial choppiness as well, because uh, in many respects, the supply of vanadium operates not according to the vanadium price, but according to the iron ore price and how much of that lower grade magnetite um, is being pushed into the market. So you've got compounding geopolitical and commercial vulnerabilities there. What makes it interesting for us in this conversation is uh, an awful lot of the vanadium that's been mined in the States has been mined together with uranium, um, as we've seen with energy fuels, for example. And uh, so anything that benefits or helps along vanadium is presumably going to help along um, a number of different uh, traditional uranium deposits as well, conventional um, mined uranium deposits as well. Yeah, and I, I can imagine Energy Fuels be feeling a little bit perky about this one, given that they've got the White Mesa Mill um, there, which they need to feed. It's a, it's, a, it's a beast. They need to feed the beast. I think they might have given the template for the uh, petition, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, 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 feels, it feels the same. As there have been lots of conversations. We've had this conversation around rare earths as well. So I, I wonder if... Um, you sometimes wonder if these guys have energy fuels in particular, just as you say, use a template and off, off you go again. But it's, it's certainly an interesting conversation. Vanadium has been very volatile in the marketplace. There are some very big producers out there uh, all over the world, you know, not just, just the US, you know, so I'm not, I'm not sure supply is a big issue. Uh, so a, a big issue really, uh, it's 90% of the steel market at the moment. But there are, say, these other applications which are very niche in, you know, air, you know aerospace, air engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, VRFB, the, 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 um, that looks huge to me in terms of long-term storage capability. So, um, but we shall move on and um, talk about that another day. I want to ask you one last question, and then I'm going to want you to sum up what it means to the market, which is obviously spot price at the moment. Which is the thing people look for. I know there's a lot of other moving parts as we've talked about in multiple conversations the past 10 weeks. Um, but spot price is the thing that people look at. So it, it, it's been an interesting week. What's your take on um, the movement of the spot price at the moment? And you know, can you, can you sort of forecast what you think's coming up on the basis of what you've seen over the last couple of weeks? The only thing that I'll forecast is it's going to continue to be choppy, I think. You know, that's, that's fairly clear. We just aren't seeing a lot of volume in the spot market. So whenever we don't have much volume, it's vulnerable to um, impact of traders. You know, we're coming up to a significant milestone at the end of June. So there's, there will be parties who are motivated to impact 
that number. And if there isn't enough buying, that might happen. Um, we've got a swing buyer in the market, Cameco, who uh, can sort of make this dynamic work for them either way in terms of allowing the price to come down or pushing it up or just doing being happy to participate with whatever it does. Um, and we've got uh, a number of players who are sitting on the sidelines just to see what happens, particularly in Kazakhstan. Um, no doubt that response in that interview was directed at utilities and others uh, to say, look, we're not going to come on early. So don't try and wait out this market. Don't game it to see that if we, you know, come July 1, are we, are we back in action? Are those pounds just pouring out again? So what does all that mean? Well, it means that until we've got a greater level of buying in the spot market, um, there will be parties who are sitting on very healthy paper profits at the moment. Um, just to remind everyone, the spot market is not an immediate delivery market. So there will be parties, like financial players, traders, who would have bought uranium in the $24 to $25 range back in March. They won't have taken delivery on that material yet. They won't have paid for it yet. And now they've got the chance to take a $24 pound and sell it at a $30, $32, $33, $34 pound. And if they're under a little bit of a squeeze in, for other reasons related to COVID and the, the various financial ramifications of this pandemic, uh, it's going to be tempting for them to tip that out. And if there aren't, isn't a lot of buying that week, we might well see the price come back a bit. So happy to predict a little bit of volatility around the edges, but I think what we do have here is a, a broader trend which is moving up. And for all of the things that we've talked about, all of those reasons, the, the market isn't feeling the disruption yet. That disruption is going to be felt in the latter half of this year at the time when the genuine buyers will be coming into the market, particularly as the utilities are able to come out of the direct distractions and difficulties that they're facing with COVID. Okay. I guess we shall see what happens in the next week or so um, <clears throat> with regards to that choppiness. Um, Final thing is, um, we note that Peninsula Energy, an Aussie company with assets in the US, they are really gone for it. They're raising 40 million bucks. That's a chunk of change. That's one of the biggest raises that we've seen recently. So I wonder what they know. Uh, look, it, I don't want to get too involved in commenting on other companies' balance sheets and that mm. type of thing. But you're right. It is a little bit like what we've seen with the Kazadam prom raising. It's good to have uh, brokers drawing fees out of this type of thing. Good to have advisors drawing fees. Um, it's paying for the wheels to go around in the sector. Um, I think we both agree that the folk at Peninsula are really good people. They're, they're very competent, uh, good operators. Um, you know, I respect Wayne a lot. And I, I also know what it's like to have a, a big dominant player on the register. Um, when I took over this, the helmet Bannerman, uh, RCF was a 38% shareholder. And whilst I've only ever had very good dealings with them and, and it's been a very positive relationship, um, it is something that can be a turnoff to a lot of investors to see a private equity fund having a dominant position. And we didn't have to deal with debt, not, not by then anyway, not by the time I came in. So, um, uh, without commenting specifically on what Peninsula has done, 
uh, I think it's it's positive for the sector, and you know I think they've put themselves in a really strong position to go forward now. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's good for the market that they believe they can get that over the line. Given given that where their their starting point today, um, I think it's it projects a lot of faith in the financial market where I've come from that they think they can get a deal of that size over the line for the company of this side because it's you know it's, it's a really big percentage of the of the uh, as a percentage of, of the company so good luck to them and i'll be speaking to them later to find out get the get it from the horse's mouth from wayne so uh i'll say hi for you um brandon thanks very much we're, we're, you know I, I think it's um you know these these little movements in the in the market these little that they all kind of add up and i think the it's, it's moving Moving the, the market and the, the positive market sentiment forward, I think generalists are now paying attention to this. We're seeing a lot more coverage of uranium um, with, you know, with articles, with interviews. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting times for you guys. You know, also, Matt, in terms of what we're doing with these weekly chats, I'm getting really great feedback. I think more and more people are seeing this as a as a regular opportunity to learn about the sector, the intricacies of it in real time. So while some of the topics that we talk about aren't dramatic catalysts, the fact that we're following threads on some big issues is a great opportunity for a lot of investors and others who are interested in the sector just to develop a solid understanding. And I know that you're passionate about educating investors and that's certainly where I'm coming from. So really gratifying to get all of that feedback and long may it continue. I'm going to continue. Brandon, go have yourself a fantastic weekend. I've still got a few hours to go here. Uh, I'll be finished in six hours, I think, I hope. Um, but we'll catch up with you next week. Great. Okay. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.